Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So, this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's about 10 in the morning on Monday the 23rd of November 1896 and British-born sea captain Lee Weller is ready to bid farewell to Australia. For just over a week now he's been in the New South Wales port city of Newcastle, staying at the sailor's home while waiting to get work aboard a vessel bound for San Francisco. From the Golden Gate City he intends to travel to New York and then home across the Atlantic to London. A few days ago, Lee Weller, despite having a master's certificate, signed on as an ordinary swabby aboard the Swan Hilda. Some 270 feet in length and weighing more than 2,000 tonnes, this big, four-masted bark is under the command of Captain Colin Fraser. Carrying 3,300 tonnes of Newcastle coal, Swan Hilda is bound for San Francisco and should make the run in about 60 days. While most of the two dozen crew members have been aboard for the past 48 hours, Lee Weller has made arrangements to join just before Swanhilda sets sail. So it is this morning that he's in a boat being rowed to Swanhilda by a waterman named Robert Payne and in the company of Charles Booth Jr., son of the manager of the Newcastle Sailors' Home. Lee Weller is a big fellow, dark hair and eyes, a nose that's a bit bent out of shape, a scar under one eye, and another skirting the top of his big moustache. He has with him in the boat a large portmanteau that's wrapped in canvas. And over the past week, some sailors' home residents have become familiar with this big suitcase. That's because its owner has flashed its contents, including a lot of ladies' jewellery that he says he's going to give to his sisters in London. Lee Weller has also shown off two Bulldog revolvers, for which he's been seen to have plenty of ammunition. A maid at the sailor's home has even complained he keeps one of these pistols under his pillow. 
Swanhilda is set to go to sea at 11 this morning. Lee Weller has made it clear to young Charles Booth that if the vessel is delayed for any reason, he intends to come back ashore. He can't afford to be stuck on a ship going nowhere. As he's boarding Swanhilda, the portmanteau slips through a rope and drops into the drink. Lee Weller is frantic about its retrieval. The waterman Robert Payne manages to save it before it sinks, and pulling it up, he notices how heavy it is. Lee Weller is much relieved to take it back into his possession, and he hurries with the suitcase below to his bunk. Down there, Charles Booth Jr. says a fond farewell to Lee Weller. He likes the man and says that he hopes one day they'll be able to renew their acquaintance. Lee Weller says that's unlikely because he's had quite enough of Australia. Charles Booth returns to shore, Captain Colin Fraser musters his crew, and Swanhilda casts off on time. With the bark soon over the horizon, the man calling himself Lee Weller, the man also known as Frank Butler, Frank Horwood, Richard Ash, and John Newman, can breathe a sigh of relief. Australia is behind him. No one knows who he is or where he is. No one knows what he's done to three men or where they are. What Frank Butler knows is that, all being well, in two months from now, he'll step onto a San Francisco wharf and stride right into a new life. What he doesn't know, because it hasn't yet made the newspapers, is that in the Little Blue Mountains village of Glenbrook, police are searching bushland for and questioning locals about a missing British sea captain named Lee Weller. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part two of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's First Serial Killer Manhunt. After last being seen with Lee Weller in Glenbrook on the 30th of October, 1896, Frank Butler the next day returned to Sydney on the train. He took a room at the Coffee Palace in George Street, and he used Lee Weller's ticket to collect the sea chest that the man had left at the Redfern Railway Station. Butler summoned Moss Wolf, a well-known city second-hand dealer, to come to his hotel room and check out the contents of this chest. It contained books, clothes, sheet music and a bulldog revolver. Some of these items even had Lee Weller's name written on them. Moss Wolf didn't care and he paid Butler £2 for the lot and then threw in another five shillings for the rifle. It wasn't much, but Butler had hung on to Weller's cash and his jewellery. He'd also kept his papers, including a recent shipping permit and his master's certificate. Butler now wanted to put Australia behind him. While he could have gotten work on a ship outbound from Sydney as Richard Ash, he instead took a huge risk by heading to Newcastle. It was a risk because that was where, in 1893, under the Richard Ash name, he'd fallen afoul of the law and spent a month in jail. So, there was every chance he'd be recognised and even remembered. To lessen this danger, Butler might have tried to get on a ship from Newcastle as Frank Butler or under what was likely his real name, John Newman. Inexplicably, he went for the riskiest option there was and posed as Captain Lee Weller. From their conversations, Butler had to know that Weller had spent much time in Newcastle and that it was where his wife had died just three months earlier. Tempting fate, Butler arrived in Newcastle on the 15th of November on a steamer from Sydney. Getting off at the wharf, he was immediately recognised by the owner of the boarding house where he'd stayed in 1893. 
This man asked if he needed accommodation. Butler told him no because he'd be taking a room at the sailor's home. There, Butler would befriend the manager Charles Booth Sr. along with his son and identify himself as Lee Weller by showing the man's maritime documents. Over the next week or so, in conversation with the Booths and with other residents, Butler would also appropriate some of Lee Weller's experiences as a sailor and show off items of gold jewellery that he claimed were made from Western Australian gold, even though their hallmarks were clearly from England. Butler told Charles Booth Sr., who acted as a recruiting agent for Captain's Needing Crew, that he wanted to work his way to San Francisco. While he waited for a berth, walking around Newcastle was incredibly risky for Butler. The game would be up if someone greeted him as Richard Ash while he was in earshot of anyone who believed him to be Lee Weller. Same went if he was referred to as Lee Weller around anyone who'd known the real sea captain who'd so recently been in this city. And in fact, during his perambulations, Butler was noticed on several occasions by Detective James McHattie. This was the Newcastle police officer who in August had broken the news to Lee Weller of his wife's death. For Butler, it was simple blind luck that Detective McHattie didn't catch wind that there was a new Lee Weller in town. Though Butler was hoping for a job on a ship bound for San Francisco on the 17th of November, he nevertheless went to the office of the Newcastle Morning Herald and Miners Advocate and placed the following advertisement, quote, Metallurgist wants agreeable mate. Prospecting, mining experience unnecessary. Equal shares. Butler, this office. This notice cost him a shilling for three lines. Yet the ad only fit into this space because Butler struck out the phrase rough country to save himself sixpence. Was he actually looking to take another mate out to his fate in this rough country? He might have been and then changed his mind. What's also possible is that he placed the ad to make anyone who did come looking for him think that he'd gone out prospecting again. In any event, Butler never came back to the newspaper office to collect responses. Two days later, at Charles Booth's instigation, he went to the shipping office and signed on to the Swan Hilda. In Sydney the next day, the 20th of November, the real Lee Weller's friend, Robert Luckham, sent a letter to New South Wales's Inspector General of Police. He wrote to say he feared for the safety of his missing friend, who'd gone mining in the Blue Mountains with a man named Frank Butler. The next day, Saturday the 21st, two police went up from Penrith to Glenbrook to make inquiries. They quickly found locals who remembered seeing a man fitting Lee Weller's description in the company of another fellow. They'd arrived on the train from Sydney and set up their tent near the lagoon. Police found the remains of this camp, and there they discovered an old pair of trousers and, in what was left of a fire, a partially burned pocketbook. The flames hadn't entirely consumed it, and an inscription was plainly visible. It read, Initial R, L-U-C-K-H. This didn't bode well for Lee Weller. Robert Luckham had made a gift of this inscribed pocketbook to his friend before he left to go prospecting. So, how had it wound up burned? It was feasible that it had fallen into the flames accidentally and that its owner was alive and well somewhere. Feasible, but foul play seemed far more likely. Police kept searching, 
including investigating deep air shafts that had been sunk into the Glenbrook hillside when pipes carrying water from the lagoon to the railway station had been laid. Among the police's discoveries were two pieces of oilcloth used for covering swags, and, far more mysteriously, a roughly drawn map of the area with an X marked on it. From interviews with Glenbrook witnesses, they learned that Lee Willer had been seen with his mining partner on Friday the 30th of October. But the following day, this man, who carried a rifle and a swag, had left Glenbrook alone and caught the train to Sydney from Emu Plains. That was where the investigation stood on Monday the 23rd of November, when the man calling himself Lee Weller sailed from Newcastle aboard the Swan Hilda. The next day, police in Glenbrook found a tent in good condition in a shaft near the lagoon camp. In bush close by, they found a blue serge coat with what looked like a stab wound beneath one arm. In another shaft, they found a leather legging. Police reinforcements were sent from Sydney and they dragged the lagoon. They didn't find anything, but on Thursday, a matching legging was retrieved from a gully. Detective Hector McLean of Sydney joined the search and he had a close call when he was lowered into a shaft and came face to face with a black snake. Several tense minutes ensued until he was able to be hauled up and out. In another shaft were found a shirt and a number of 32 caliber bullets. Police dragged the lagoon again with no result. Back in Sydney, Detective John Roche was on the case. He knew Lee Weller because a couple of months ago he'd been involved in recovering the man's wallet and documents after they'd been stolen. Now he was following up on the movements of Frank Butler Hallwood. Of course, one of the numerous people who'd encountered him was one of Detective Roche's own colleagues, newly minted probationary constable Michael Conroy. In early September, Conroy, then still a citizen, had been staying at Gillam's Hotel and had almost gone prospecting in Albury with Butler. He'd seen the man close up on several occasions and knew his manner and his voice. Investigations at Gillam's also produced a photo of Butler that he'd vainly given to a girl who worked there. On Friday the 27th of November, Sydney's Evening News ran the story of the search for Sea Captain Lee Weller, who'd gone missing in the company of the mysterious Frank Butler. Readers learned that Lee Weller had answered a newspaper ad, gone to Glenbrook and not been seen since. The article described the evidence that had so far been found, noting that one of the leather leggings recovered had been marked Jarman Maker Brisbane. These items of clothing had not belonged to Lee Weller. So, whose were they? The article included Butler's description, noted that he went by Frank Horwood or Harwood, told readers that he'd been placing newspaper ads, and that police suspected he was now out prospecting again in the countryside. As for that map with the X on it, police would learn that a swagman named Peter Farrell had met Butler at Emu Plains on the Saturday before he got the train to Sydney. Butler had given this itinerant some tucker and said he'd left other possessions at a camp he'd just broken in Glenbrook. Then he'd drawn him a map with X marking the spot. The swaggy had gone to the location and found a few odds and ends. Police concluded that the cunning butler had hoped the swagman would be seen in the vicinity, 
found with incriminating items and perhaps be blamed for whatever crime or crimes had been committed. By Saturday the 28th of November, the Blue Mountains mystery was news all over the Australian colonies and Arthur Preston's friends and family contacted police about their missing loved one. Now the headlines became simply breathless. The evening news that night led with, quote, The mountain mystery, another Sydney man missing, Glenbrook again, rumours of foul play, sensational disclosures expected. Following this, people farther up the mountains identified Arthur Preston and Butler as the men they'd seen around Linden on or about the 22nd of October. Near where they'd been seen, a torn flannel undershirt was found. It bore the initials A-T-O-P, Arthur Thomas Osborne Preston. Detective Hector McLean and other police searched the vicinity, but nothing more was found. As the Daily Telegraph pointed out, quote, The country hereabouts is exceedingly rugged. The hills are almost terraced with crags, and the grass, trees and undergrowth and the fallen timber make walking very difficult. In addition to this, one party was warned, in a friendly way, to beware of death adders and snakes. In Sydney, the newspapers reported that Detective Roche and his colleagues were confident that they'd soon find this butler fellow and get answers from him as to the whereabouts of the missing men. To hurry things along, the New South Wales government on Monday the 30th of November offered rewards totalling £100, including £50 for information about Lee Weller and the discovery of his remains. Then came reports from farther out west, around Orange and Parks, that Frank Butler had been seen there in August with a mining mate and then been seen leaving the district alone. As Bathurst's National Advocate newspaper reported on the 1st of December, quote, The Blue Mountain mystery is daily becoming more sensational. It is now stated that a third man is also missing under similar circumstances. The area out west was even vaster and the trail was colder, so police were at a bit of a loss to know where to look, though they started talking to witnesses and tracing where Butler and the man who'd later be identified as Charles Burgess had been. That same day, the 1st of December, it was revealed that the Newcastle Morning Herald and Miners Advocate had, two weeks earlier, run an advertisement for a mining mate placed by a man named Butler. The wording was close to identical to the ads from the Sydney newspapers and the Newcastle Herald's clerk revealed that the man who'd placed the ad had originally wanted to include the trademark phrase, Rough Country. When a photo of Butler was put up outside the newspaper office, Newcastle people crowded around, many of them saying they recognised him as a man they'd seen in the city in the past fortnight. Then it was realised that a man calling himself Lee Weller had signed ship's articles and sailed on the Swanhilda on the 23rd of November. Most sensational was the revelation that the man in the photo had hidden in plain sight as Lee Weller at the sailor's home for more than a week. As the Newcastle Morning Herald put it, quote, His daring in passing himself off as the original Captain Lee Weller is the most inexplicable part of the problem inasmuch as there are several in town who, had they been introduced to or come in contact with the imposter, would have immediately detected the imposition. Frank Butler had gotten away from Australia, 
but that didn't necessarily mean that he'd escaped. As the Newcastle Morning Herald explained, quote, the Swan Hilda is now nine days out and allowing for an average passage of 60 to 65 days hence to the Golden Gate, there is ample time for the strong arm of the law to reach the suspect in time to extend a welcome to him on his arrival at San Francisco. For the time being though, the law was being sorely tested in the Blue Mountains. Police dragged the Glenbrook Lagoon yet again, along with deep water tanks near Numantia where Butler and Preston had been seen camping. They found nothing. Police and an ever-growing army of volunteers also searched Sassafras Gully and the even deeper Pump House Gully, with one newspaper commenting that the descents were so precipitous that even goats would be unable to do them without risking injury. Searchers had to stay within 20 to 30 yards of each other lest they become lost and with the early summer heat already fearful, police and volunteers were exhausted at the end of each fruitless day. One of the few new things that they had to show for their efforts in searching Glenbrook was a miners' right paper issued in Western Australia in 1893 to Frank Butler Horwood. It was confirmed that the real Hallwood was still working in the Western Australian goldfields and that he'd reported this and other documents stolen from his tent. So who was he really? The earliest trace of him came from Newcastle people who recognised the man as Richard Ash, last seen in the city in 1893. With details of Butler's modus operandi now known, older Sydney siders recalled an eerily similar double murder case that had happened nearly quarter of a century earlier. For those who'd forgotten or who'd been too young when the crimes were committed in 1872, the Daily Telegraph helpfully printed a brief refresher about killers George Nichols and Alfred Lester. This deadly duo had lured two men to their deaths with bogus newspaper advertisements. And if you're so inclined, you can hear their story in the 16th of January 2019 Forgotten Australia episode called The Parramatta River Murders. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It had now been nearly two weeks since the alarm had first been raised about Lee Weller, and police were no closer to finding him or Arthur Preston. On Wednesday the 2nd of December, the Australian Star newspaper's headline actually read, quote, The Mountain Mystery. The Plot Thickens. More Clothes, but No Corpses. For the accompanying article, the Australian Star's writer had spoken to various Glenbrook residents. One witness said he'd seen Lee Weller on the Friday morning dressed, quote, like a blooming toff and out with a rifle looking for a wallaby. The Australian Star reported that Weller had been seen helping to take down the tent before he'd vanished from the face of the earth. 
The newspaper speculated that this meant he hadn't been killed at the lagoon, which was in view of regular passers-by, and had instead been lured elsewhere to be finished off. Where, though, was anyone's guess, because, quote, On the patch of country to be scoured in the thick turpentine scrub, there are places in which an army might be hidden. Farther up the mountain, witness interviews helped confirm Preston and Butler's movements so that the search now focused on the gullies near their new Mantia camp, though this landscape still spanned miles and was dense and rugged. In the late afternoon of the 3rd of December, after another hard day's searching, two probationary constables, Charles Delaney and John Hardiman, were returning to the police's camp at Linden along a bush track. By chance, Constable Delaney noticed a patch of turned-over soil beneath a rock ledge. He told the Australian star that he called out to his mate, quote, There's something wrong here, Jack. Constable Delaney continued, We started probing with our sticks. At first, as we were away from the hole, the ground was hard, but presently my stick went down about eight inches and I could feel something spongy beneath. Jack got his down a couple of feet and we knew we had struck something. When I pulled mine up, there was black hair on the end. After smelling it, I knew there was a dead man there. Calling on another colleague nearby, the three constables uncovered enough soil to see a man's head and body. They then summoned the main search party, which arrived before sunset. The news was relayed to Sydney, and it was decided the body would be left under guard where it was overnight while officials made their way from the city to the mountains. Glenbrook was buzzing with the news, and search parties arriving back in the village were besieged by locals demanding information. Crowds gathered that night at the railway station as the mail train arrived from Sydney, carrying senior police, medical officers, and Arthur Preston's friend, Robert Fielding. Before dawn the next morning, a party of men, including the police surgeon, government pathologist, Detective John Roche and Robert Fielding, set out for the remote Bushgrave site. There, the body was carefully uncovered. The Australian Star's man reported, quote, It lay on its back, with head turned to the left side, but nearly upright, the legs drawn up out of shape. A towel had been looped beneath the armpits, indicating the body had been dragged to this spot. But the grave had been far too small, leading the killer to stomp the body into place. The Australian Star, quote, The stench was fearful, and the whole surroundings so pitiful that many turned away, not only on account of the odour, but on account of their shocked feelings of the ferocious manner in which the deed had been carried out. Though the face was decomposed and covered in congealed blood, the features were still recognisable. Fighting back tears, Robert Fielding immediately identified his dead friend. The smell was so bad that a fire had to be made to help the men cope as they loaded the body into a plain coffin. The Australian Star, quote, It was a melancholy procession that filed through the bush bearing the remains of so young a man so foully murdered. After great trouble, the body reached Linden Station at 8 o'clock. There was quite a crowd. At Penrith, formal examination of the body would reveal that Arthur Preston had been killed by a single gunshot wound to the back of the head. The bullet had travelled on a downward trajectory through his brain, 
likely indicating it had been fired from slightly above him, perhaps when he'd been sitting, kneeling, or standing in a hole that he'd been digging. With Arthur Preston found, the New South Wales government doubled the reward for Lee Weller to £100. So many newspaper reporters had descended on Glenbrook that a telegraph office was opened to cope with all their outgoing messages. As we heard in part one, on the morning of Saturday the 31st of October, an old Glenbrook resident named JJ Wood had spotted a man coming up out of the gully behind his property. He'd learned that this fellow, who'd been carrying a rifle and a swag, was one of the two prospectors foolishly looking for gold in these parts. Mr Wood hadn't thought any more of it, and soon after, he'd headed out west to do a bit of prospecting at Mudgee with a friend named Mr C.C. Champion. Over the past week, Mr Wood had learned about what was happening back home. With a £100 reward on offer, you now actually could strike it rich in Glenbrook. So Mr Wood and Mr Champion headed back there. Arriving unannounced, Mr Wood told his family, quote, Oh, I have come to find Lee Weller. They must be a lot of muffs not to have found him before this. Those muffs, now totalling some 150 police and volunteers, on foot, on bicycles, on horses and in buggies, were still on the hunt. Thanks to a few mistaken sightings, though, they were concentrating their efforts around Glenbrook Lagoon and east of Glenbrook Village. On Saturday, Mr Wood and Mr Champion went south down into the gully behind Mr Wood's house. They spent a day searching, focusing on areas that were similar to the descriptions they'd read about where Preston had been found. That was, areas of earth beneath rock ledges or boulders. They found nothing. At 8 on the morning of Sunday the 6th of December, they headed out again, taking a track south towards a part of Glenbrook Creek that was used by locals as a swimming hole. They were just 10 yards or so from a bridle path and only a short distance from a buggy track when they took a part of the path that was less used and beneath a rock overhang, Mr. Wood saw earth that looked like it had been disturbed and twigs that seemed to have been arranged not by nature, but by human hands. Mr. Wood prodded the ground a few times with his stick and up came the stink of death. Mr. Champion guarded what was now their claim, while Mr. Wood summoned Detective McLean, who let his superiors in Sydney know the latest. By the time Detective McLean reached the grave site with Mr. Wood, the Glenbrook grapevine had resulted in a good-sized crowd already gathering. A railway fettler who was on hand with a shovel was asked to dig a little. With some soil removed, a body was clearly visible, and the stench worsened. To stop the smell, Detective McLean ordered the remains to be covered over for now. They'd wait until officials arrived from Sydney. By noon, some 200 people had gathered, and some of these folks were restless to free the dead man from his unholy grave by digging him up themselves. Detective McLean ordered these people to stand back, and he posted half a dozen constables around the grave to guard against any interference. Back in Sydney, police procured a special train to take them up to Glenbrook. Its passengers would include senior police, along with Detective Roche and probationary constable Michael Conroy. 
Also aboard would be the Crown Solicitor, the Coroner, the Government Pathologist, Lee Weller's friend Robert Luckham, the missing man's landlady Mrs Trennan and a reporter from the Daily Telegraph. This special train left just before 3pm, towing a mortuary carriage that contained a coffin. In mid-1896 in New South Wales, telephone fees had been slashed, which led to a surge in people embracing the technology, and by December that year, there were some 4,500 sets in use across the city, suburbs and Blue Mountains. News about the discovery of a second body blazed across telephone wires that day so that as the special train roared west, people knew to flank the railway line to watch it pass. And as the train went through Penrith Station, it was seen by a big crowd who'd gathered because the local paper, despite it being Sunday, had already published an extraordinary edition. This attention, though, was nothing compared with what awaited up the mountain line when the train arrived at Glenbrook at ten past four. People had come down from Springwood and up from as far away as St Mary's. As the Daily Telegraph reporter wrote, quote, Glenbrook was one huge picnic crowd when we arrived. People from miles around had come in with their horses or conveyances and were making a day of it. The bush was dotted with picnic parties. These picnic people shadowed the official party to the gravesite, joining the other spectators already gathered at this spot, the crowd now swelling to some 500 ghouls. The Daily Telegraph reporter observed, quote, The afternoon was oppressively hot, Nearly every man was smoking and pressing round the spot where the diggers stood. The body was carefully uncovered. Again, this grave had been far too small for the victim. The body was face down and doubled up. The Daily Telegraph. It was trussed up like a table fowl, the head forced down on the chest and the knees drawn up to the chin. In this way, Weller had been literally crammed into his grave. It was a sickening sight. Detective McLean removed a sheath knife attached to the dead man's trouser belt. He also recovered a felt hat and a coat whose pocket held a briar pipe. Robert Luckham identified these as having belonged to his friend Lee Weller. Constables lifted the body onto a blanket and turned it onto its back and straightened the limbs. A Sydney Morning Herald reporter at the scene wrote, quote, A more ghastly sight could not be imagined. As the body became exposed to the general view, a cry of horror went up from the people. Women fainted, and even the faces of strong men paled under the heart-rending scene. Then the effluvia from the corpse became unbearable, and, with the exception of those whose duty compelled them to stay, all hurried away from the range of its influence. The Daily Telegraph reporter said, One wouldn't wish to see many faces like that. One side... The left was drawn down and covered with blood. It looks as though it might have been smashed in with some blunt instrument or it might have been done by a bullet shattering the bone. Again, despite the damage and decomposition, quote, the face would be easily recognisable by any person who had known Weller in life. Detective John Roche had met him. Robert Luckham made a positive identification, as did landlady Mrs Trennan. Constable Michael Conroy had met Frank Butler, but he hadn't met Lee Weller. Nevertheless, he felt a hideous kinship with the corpse, and he later told the Australian Star that at that moment he'd thought, I might have been like that poor fellow. 
The Sydney Morning Herald's reporter was astounded that this crime had been committed within half a mile of a dozen houses and within a few yards of a well-used track. Quote, For coolness and audacity, it could not be excelled. How the man could have the nerve to coolly bury the body in so exposed a place in open daylight is beyond explanation. Lee Weller's autopsy was held in Penrith on Monday the 7th of December. He'd been shot in the back of the head with a revolver at close range. From the bullet's trajectory, it was thought he'd been standing with his head slightly bowed when he died. Like Arthur Preston, the coroner believed that Lee Weller had been killed instantly. A double inquest was held, hearing from many of the witnesses whose stories we've heard so far. The coroner's verdict was that Arthur Preston and Lee Weller had been willfully murdered by a man calling himself Frank Butler Horwood. Yet, even before this verdict was handed down, the New South Wales colonial government had already set in motion plans to extradite Butler. Time was of the essence because retrieving the alleged killer from San Francisco wasn't going to be straightforward. As a British colony, New South Wales couldn't make the request directly of the United States of America. That had to come from the British Foreign Office, and to issue the extradition request, its officials needed to see the documentation in person. On Monday morning, after the discovery of Lee Weller's body, Sydney's Inspector General of Police convened an extradition court. There, a magistrate issued a warrant for Frank Butler's arrest. Armed with this, Detective John Roche had that night caught the express train to Adelaide where, on the 9th of December, he boarded the steamer Austral. It was scheduled to arrive in Naples on the 7th of January. From there, Detective Roche would go overland. When he reached London, it was hoped his request would be approved quickly by the Foreign Office and, within a few days, he'd be able to take a steamer to New York. From there, Detective Roche would have to travel to Washington, D.C. to have the extradition approved by the U.S. Secretary of State. That done, he'd jump on a train for the five-day trip across the country to San Francisco. In the Golden Gate City, Detective Roche would present the extradition papers to American authorities. These U.S. law enforcement officials had already been given the heads up by cable that Butler was heading their way and had been asked to detain him in advance of the extradition papers arriving with all the T's crossed and the I's dotted. Thing was though, even if everything went to schedule, Detective Roche's globetrotting journey would get him to San Francisco on the 26th of January. That was one day after the Swanhilda was due. Further, there was no way to send a photo of Butler to the San Francisco authorities. So there was a chance they'd miss their man. That meant that Detective James McHattie and Probationary Constable Michael Conroy, who'd both seen Butler with their own eyes, were heading to San Francisco. Butler's choice of a ship under sail for his escape had given the police a distinct advantage. Detective McHattie and Constable Conroy left Sydney on Saturday the 12th of December aboard the steamer Miawira. This boat could cross the Pacific and arrive in Vancouver by the first week of January. From there, they'd take the train to San Francisco and still arrive in plenty of time to coordinate with the Americans before the Swanhilda reached the coast. 
Once Detective McHattie and Constable Conroy had their man in custody and Detective Roche had arrived with the extradition papers, the next ship from San Francisco to Australia left on the 4th of February. All going to plan, it was hoped that Frank Butler would be back in Sydney on the 1st of March and would face his trial soon afterwards. The police had time on their side and they had another big advantage. Butler had sailed from Newcastle just before his name and that of Lee Weller and Arthur Preston had made the newspapers. Swanhilda was sailing direct to San Francisco so the wanted man wouldn't have a chance to read any articles about the search for him. Shorter ship wireless telegraphy was still a few years in the future so there was no way that Butler could know he'd been charged with two murders and that the police were going to be waiting for him in San Francisco. Except, on the 9th of December, the same day that Detective Roche steamed from Adelaide on the first leg of his epic voyage, the Swan Hilda was sighted and identified about 900 miles northeast of New Zealand's North Island by the crew of the steamship Torpo. Torpo's master hadn't read the news, but one of his officers had, and he brought him up to speed about the murders. Captain Macbeth used flag signals to tell Swan Hilda's Captain Fraser, quote, have important communication to make. Swan Hilda hove to and Torpo came abreast. Torpo's second mate was given a file of recent newspapers from New Zealand that contained stories about Butler. He was ordered to convey these along with Captain Macbeth's private letter of warning to Captain Fraser. The second mate was lowered in a boat, rode to the Swanhilda and went with its master to his cabin. Meanwhile, the men of the Torpo were under strict orders not to talk to the Swanhilda's crew. But with the ships sitting close to one another, the Swanhilda's men started asking what was going on. One Swabby in particular was persistent, leaning over the rails and saying, quote, What the hell do you fellows want? You're after something. A Torpo crew member replied, perhaps not entirely helpfully, quote, Oh, our captain only wants to give you the latest news from the world, as you'll be a long time cut off. In his cabin, Captain Fraser heard a brief account of the murder of Butler. He said that he didn't have any man of that name aboard or who fit that description. Leaving the newspapers and warning letter behind with Captain Fraser, the second mate returned to his ship. Torpo resumed its voyage to Tahiti and Swanhilda continued on to San Francisco. Back in Australia, it wasn't until Christmas Day that this meeting between Torpo and Swanhilda made the newspapers. Readers learned that Torpo had been two days out of Auckland when it hailed Swanhilda on the 9th of December. The timing of this meant that the newspapers the mate had delivered would have contained cable stories from Australia reporting that Butler was wanted for two presumed murders and also contained the news that he'd fled Newcastle on the Swanhilda under the name Lee Weller. There was immediate concern at what Captain Macbeth had done. Had his actions tipped off Butler, leading this killer, who was known to be travelling with at least two revolvers to take desperate action to ensure he remained free? Or had Captain Macbeth's sensible warning about the menace in his midst meant Captain Fraser had been able to arrest Butler and put him in irons until the vessel reached San Francisco? There was absolutely no way to know. 
Assuming the vessel was still intact and afloat, Swanhilda was now one month into its voyage, with one month to go before it reached San Francisco. On Boxing Day 1896, Sydney siders crowded into the city's School of Arts to see the Panthoscope colour lantern slide reproductions of the Mountain Mystery. The presentation didn't include fanciful scenes of what might be happening aboard the Swanhilda. For that, you'd have to have your imagination stoked by the newspapers. As an example, the Daily Telegraph interviewed Butler's former Olive Bank shipmate who'd known him as Richard Ashe back in 1893. His opinion was paraphrased by the newspaper, quote, The action of the captain of the Torpo in communicating, as reported, with the captain of the Swanhilda was very unwise. He thinks that Butler would smell a rat when he saw the Tolpo's boat come off to the ship, and if he concluded that he was in a corner, he would stop at nothing to extricate himself. The man believes that if Butler got wind of the fact that Captain Fraser had received the newspapers and the warning letter, he would at once induce as many as possible of the crew to join him in a mutiny, and having shot down anyone who interfered with their plans, they would seize one or more of the boats and leave the ship, and steer for what they considered safe territory. Failing this, Butler might set fire to or scuttle the ship, and in the confusion, lower a boat and make off alone. In any case, Butler's former companion is certain that if he had his suspicions aroused by the visit of the boat from the steamer, there has already been trouble on board the Swanhilda. Early in the new year, with no further news coming from the open oceans where the criminal and the cops chasing him were now in a sort of limbo, the Butler story went into brief hibernation in Australia. At the very same time, American newspaper owners and editors were waking up to the murder drama about to unfold on their shores. On the 6th of January, the New York Times ran a page 16 article headlined, Waiting for a Murderer a man who has killed many prospectors in New South Wales. The Times story reported that Butler was suspected of killing Preston and Weller and committing at least a dozen other murders. The article said that two Australian police, Detective McHattie and Constable Conroy, had just arrived in Vancouver and would soon be in San Francisco to lay a trap for this fiend. From the New York Times on down, newspapers all over America were to keenly follow the story, not least because the fugitive's destination had guaranteed him maximum coverage. San Francisco, home base of mogul William Randolph Hearst, then had one of the country's most colourful and competitive daily newspaper markets. Hearst's San Francisco Examiner, his flagship newspaper set the pace for its rivals, the San Francisco Chronicle and, to a lesser extent, the San Francisco Call. In this cutthroat commercial environment, reporters would do anything for a scoop, including exaggerating and fabricating. And with illustrations still favoured over photographs, editors employed an army of artists to bring their stories to lurid life, following the principle that the greater the sensation, the greater the circulation. With information still scant because overseas cables were expensive, the San Francisco Examiner started the Frank Butler story relatively modestly on the 6th of January 1897 on page 8. The multi-deck headline read, quote, Death ended their dream of wealth. How Butler's victims were lured to the gold fields. 
The local British consul warned by his government. Instructions to intercept the murderer have been cabled to this city. Detective Conroy narrowly escaped assassination by this arch-fiend. A remarkable story of crime. The Australian officers nearing the end of their chase. Fears for the safety of the Swan Helder. And that was just the headline. Here's how the article began. Quote, the remarkable chase for the arch-fiend Frank Butler is rapidly drawing to a climax. The great Swan Hilda, with the Prince of Murderers on board, is somewhere on the Pacific Ocean sailing toward this port. What may now be happening on the ship, the shrewdest of reasoners cannot tell, for the captain's guest of honour is one who took the lives of 13 men and robbed the 14th of his life, his money and his name. What new cunning has inspired that devilish spirit to deeds of violence, no one can tell. And none will say that the Swan Hilda will ever reach the harbour of San Francisco. The article continued. Seldom has a story of actual events possessed so many features of dramatic interest. The people of Australia are still wrought to the highest pitch of excitement over the unparalleled outrages committed among them. They know nothing of the details of the sensational race across the seas and half around the world, and they are waiting with the keenest anticipation for the first news of the chase. The examiner told its readers that Detective McHattie and Constable Conroy would arrive in the city tomorrow. And, unless there had already been some malevolence, the Swan Hilda would reach the Golden Gate within 25 days. The vessel, it said, should be visible when it was 25 miles out, unless, of course, it arrived when there was a fog, in which case Swan Hilda might slip into the bay unnoticed. The examiner believed that if this was the case, Butler would have no trouble swimming to shore and disappearing in the city. He'd do this because... Though the American newspapers didn't yet know of the Torpo incident, Butler was surely aware he was being hunted. Quote, the murderer knows also that steamers cross the ocean more quickly than sailing ships and that the news of crime travels by cable more quickly than both. He has every reason, therefore, to fear capture. Detective McHattie and Constable Conroy arrived in San Francisco on the 8th of January. They held a conference with the city's chief of police and other officials and gave the Americans authority to act on their behalf. The Australians came bearing gifts, or at least what the newspapers considered to be gifts. These were their own experiences with Frank Butler and perhaps even more valuable photographs of the killer, his victims and the crime scenes. On the 9th of January, the Examiner and the Chronicle both promoted Frank Butler to the front page, their big stories continuing to inside spreads. Butler stared out creepily from large, hand-drawn portraits. There were also illustrations of Arthur Preston and Lee Weller as that appeared in life and how they'd looked curled up and broken in their bush graves. Newspaper artists also sketched the Australian policeman, the examiner profiling these, quote, manhunters from the Antipodes. Its reporter described Constable Conroy as, quote, a young man, frank, comparatively inexperienced and ingenuous. He is a trained athlete in a family of athletes, but he is never trained to dance with one who held death as a weapon. Constable Conroy told the paper of his experiences with Butler and that he'd agreed to split the costs of their mining expedition for a share of what they found. Conroy said, quote, My share 
would have been a bullet and a grave. The examiner lionised Detective McHattie as, quote, alert, muscular, quick of eye, nervously active and determined. He is typical of his class. The firmness of well-set square jaws shows stubborn purpose and augurs ill for the cruel murderer of the bush. Detective McHattie told the papers that he wasn't afraid of Butler escaping the Swanhilda or staging a mutiny. He viewed the vessel as a floating prison. What did concern him, though, were American lawyers and the technicalities of American law. He worried that Butler might be able to argue that American and Australian detectives had no right to arrest him as a British citizen aboard a ship sailing under the Union Jack. He might exploit such an argument to remain free or at least to stave off extradition. Yet Detective McHattie also consoled himself with the belief that Butler, who'd recently shortened a newspaper advertisement to save a few pennies, wouldn't be able to afford lawyers who'd make such complex arguments on his behalf. The examiner reported that the Australian police and their San Francisco colleagues were already talking the logistics of taking Butler into custody after Swanhilda was sighted off the Golden Gate. The rough plan was said to be for city police and a federal US marshal to board the vessel. This would be made to look like an ordinary immigration check, with the crew lined up for inspection on the deck. The Australians would be with the boarding party and on hand to identify Butler. So that he didn't identify them and start shooting or jump overboard, it had been suggested to Detective McHattie and Constable Conroy that they might don disguises. But before they set about procuring fake beards, the Australians were entitled to a rest after their long journey. Then they and the Americans would begin the day and night watch for the Swanhilda. As the examiner put it, the people of Australia are waiting for the news that the monster of the mountains has been caught. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part two of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's First Serial Killer Manhunt. The third and final instalment will be out soon, so make sure you're subscribed to get it as soon as it's released. If you enjoy Forgotten Australia, please let me know with a rating or review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This show was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.